On January 31st, 1982, Bob Dirk and his wife were together in South Sales that evening when she came home. They had a pushing and shoving argument. She was never heard from again. I grabbed him and the gun, and we fall down in the kitchen. The gun goes off and shoots him in the side of the face. Bob Durst killed numerous blacks intentionally. The jury found him innocent. No, they found him not guilty. So officers, they go in. Susan is on the floor. There's a small pool of blood around her head, and they very quickly realize that in fact, she is deceased. There is no evidence. Bob Durst did not kill Susan Berman, and he doesn't know who did. Welcome to season two of Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. Robert Durst's trial for the murder of his friend Susan Berman began in March of last year. In season one, we presented an overview of prosecutors' allegations against Durst and his defense team's response. Since the case against Durst spans four decades, starting with the mysterious disappearance of Kathy Durst in 1982 and ending with the death and dismemberment of Morris Black in 2001, the trial was expected to last for five months. While we were poised to cover the trial in real time, after only two days of testimony, the L.A. courts shut down due to COVID-19. Now, over a year later, the trial of Robert Durst is scheduled to resume on May 17th. In season two, we will continue to bring you the story of the trial as it unfolds. But before we return to the man on trial, we will start this season by taking a closer look into the life of the woman Durst is charged with murdering, his longtime friend, Susan Berman. Who was Susan before her life was tragically cut short? How did others see her, and how did she see herself? I still remember that day when I knew I was going to make it. I ran out, hugged my dog kissed my parents' pictures, yelled, I'm alive again! In this episode, we will hear about Susan's childhood and youth, sometimes in her own words, as written in her memoir, Easy Street, The True Story of a Mob Family, and as read by actress Elena Zizanis. We will also hear from some of her closest friends and collaborators. Over the next three episodes, we will explore the life of Susan Berman. And as a subscriber to this podcast, you will get alerts about special bonus episodes with the latest trial updates. As this season progresses, we will bring you weekly coverage of the trial, never-before-heard reporting on Durst's life, and in-depth analysis with special guests, including my new co-host, Brittany Bookbinder. We will tell you more about what's coming up in Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst at the end of this episode. And you can follow all of it by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. But first, here's Part 1 of our exclusive look at the life of Robert Durst's best friend and alleged murder victim, Susan Berman. That's after the break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
I'm Carrie Antholis, and in this episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, we will take a closer look into the life of the woman Durst is charged with murdering, his longtime friend, Susan Berman. In the murder trial of Robert Durst, lawyers paint a portrait of the victim, Susan Berman, that is not altogether flattering. The prosecution tells jurors, Susan, who was a victim of murder in this case, could be very, very manipulative. During opening arguments, Prosecutor John Lewin provides glimpses of testimony from Susan's friends, describing how and when she turned on the charm and turned the screw. Not only was Susan adept at pressuring people to get what she wanted, Lewin wants jurors to understand that Susan was paranoid as well. The evidence is going to show that Susan was extremely security conscious. Um, Susan had a lot of phobias, a lot of issues, and one of them was she's kind of a paranoid New Yorker. For most of us walking around today, such a trait might be considered a minor foible rather than a defining characteristic. Yet Lewin's job is to drill down on this point. Susan would never, ever in a million years open her door to a stranger. The prosecutor's case hinges on this. Lewin will present evidence suggesting that the house was not broken into, but rather Susan opened her door to whoever shot her in the back of the head on the night of December 23, 2000. It was someone she knew, maybe someone she had manipulated. The defense team adds nothing to burnish Susan's reputation. Attorney David Chesnoff casts Susan as an insufferable neurotic, as well as Bob Durst's best friend. Susan always liked to be the center of attention and could sometimes rub people the wrong way. She had weird quirks, quirks and fears. She didn't cross bridges on certain streets. She didn't eat at restaurants unless she was absolutely sure its ingredients wouldn't trigger one of her professed allergies. She was terrified of falling out of windows and of heights in general. Her personality would result in conflicts throughout her life, including among family and friends, but not with Bob. Attorneys on both sides summarized Susan's life for the jury. She was a journalist, a novelist, and a nonfiction author. Yet despite her best efforts, she never made it in Hollywood. She had a taste for luxury, but was living hand to mouth when she died. She was Robert Durst's best friend, but also allegedly his victim. But how did Susan's friends describe her? Her writing partners, or the dogged reporter who's been covering her murder for decades? Better yet, how did Susan Berman describe herself? And can insights into events that occurred decades before her death shed light on the reason behind her murder at the age of 55? That's what we'll explore on this episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. In the photo on her book jacket, Susan stands demurely, wearing a white knit sweater with three-quarter length sleeves and a snug black skirt. Her almond-shaped eyes peer out sheepishly from behind thick bangs as her long black hair falls onto her shoulders. She has her father's nose. She was a very large, very enjoyable personality. She was also brilliant and brilliant to talk to. Once you were in Susan's circle, you were in. She expected loyalty and she expected a kind of confidential friendship that it, it, it happened bang. 
there was a little aura of glamour about Susan. She was also extremely bright, one of the most intelligent women that I've ever met. That last speaker was Carol Mendelson, a successful television writer and the original showrunner for the hit TV show, CSI, Crime Scene Investigation, who collaborated with Susan during the last year of Susan's life. Together, the two wrote a pilot about a family-owned casino. Mendelssohn, whose own father had ties to Las Vegas, worked with Susan for only about six months, but their time together was intense as they bonded over shared childhood memories of the Vegas Strip. Susan was an unforgettable person. You know, I, I related to Susan. We were about the same age, grown up, you know, both spending a lot of time in Vegas and it was just, there were those shared memories and a place where we could start from that most people don't have. Susan recounted such childhood memories in her book, Easy Street, The True Story of a Mob Family, which was published in late 1981. The child of Davy, a mobster, and Gladys, a showgirl, young Susan's stomping ground was the Flamingo Hotel and Casino, and later the Riviera, which were run by her larger-than-life father. And that's where Susan grew up. And reading her book, it made me think she was Eloise at the plaza. And there was a part of her that was Eloise at the plaza. And again, I remember when I was little, my mother would sit at the pool and my father would go into meetings and I would join him for lunch in the coffee shop at the Riviera. And it would be all these guys. And I would just love to hear them talk. And that was Susan's life. She was Eloise. On the surface, those early years were carefree. In the pages of Easy Street and throughout her life, Susan would dine out on stories about growing up in casinos, watching dancers rehearse, and bouncing on the knees of notorious mobsters. Always a fabulist, she claimed that Liberace performed at her 12th birthday party. Susan attended the public grade school in a town that was being built from the dry desert sand up. There was no synagogue, so her father, the son of a poor rabbi who had immigrated from Odessa to North Dakota, helped build one. Davy's bodyguard, Lou Raskin, lived with the Berman family in their modest Tudor-style house. The middle-aged man with high-waisted pants and a bulbous nose and the little girl in her cherished cowgirl outfit and long black braids would pass the time playing gin rummy. Her father's associates, or friends as Susan thought of them, always seemed to be around. But looking back as an adult, Susan also remembered an underlying anxiety that, at the time, she was too young to name. In her memoir, Easy Street, Susan wrote, there were nights when there was so much tension in our house that even I felt scared. I didn't know why, but I knew there was something threatening happening. My mother would tiptoe around and jump at any sudden sound. And the friends would look nervous. And then the phone would ring and everybody would run for it. One of the bodyguards would pick it up and grunt answers. And then my mother would ask in a shaky voice, Was it Davy? And Lou Raskin would answer, Yes, he's fine, Gladys. Tensions reached a fever pitch when Davy was out of town. When Susan was seven, her father was called to Miami. Fearing that someone would take advantage of Davy's absence, Gladys kept Susie in the house the entire week he was away. 
Susie's obedience was rewarded. On her father's return, her parents adopted a black mutt, whom she named Blackie, the first of many dogs that Susan would love. Over time, Susan developed a vague sense of her father's ties to organized crime, though she knew none of the details. Investigative journalist James Grady, who wrote the novel that would become the movie Three Days of the Condor, met Susan in the late 70s and remained her friend. Grady was able to help educate Susan about her father's career. I apologize for using the slang vernacular, but Dave the Jew Berman, her dad, was the triumphant figure of post-prohibition organized crime in, in the upper Midwest. He was able to forge alliances not only because of Meyer Lansky and probably Sidney Korshak, but also just because he knew how to work with people. He was a real people guy. As a leading organized crime figure, Meyer Lansky was a key player in their gambling operations. Sidney Korshak was a famous labor lawyer who was also a fixer for the Chicago mob and represented their interests in Los Angeles. So he got along with the Capone faction, which was Neapolitan mafia, not Sicilian, which was still in those days important. And he also got along with the New York families and their emerging Los Angeles operation. He, I mean, his friends were like, you know, you know Ice Pick Willie. As his name suggests, Ice Pick Willie's weapon of choice was an ice pick, which he claimed to have used in 11 murders, stabbing his victims in the ear. They were just not good people, but he somehow had a reputation of being able to hold all these other forces together, which was important for Las Vegas, because Las Vegas was one of three open cities that the mafia adjudicated in their own way. There were 29 families, 25 major cities, and Vegas was one of the open ones, which meant any mafia family could operate there within diplomatically arranged fiats. As the mob got a foothold in the emerging gambling economy of Las Vegas, they put Bugsy Siegel in charge of the development of the Flamingo Hotel and Casino. The project went way over budget, and there were accusations that Siegel was skimming money. He had also made plenty of enemies. In June of 1947, Siegel was shot multiple times while sitting on the couch in the Beverly Hills home of his mistress, Virginia Hill. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So... Her father, when Bugsy Siegel is killed, I think it was something like 47 minutes after the police call that Bugsy Siegel had been shot, Dave walks into the Flamingo and says, I'm the new boss. That was a real 
diplomatic move on everybody's part because he could keep warring factions apart. He was tough enough to keep them in line and also diplomatic enough, you know, to work with the, to work with the guys. Writing partner Carol Mendelson recognized the impact Davy Berman's career had on young Susan. Maybe it's from growing up in the mob and you know you always hear, and it's probably true, you know, in the gangster movies, mobsters always sit with their back to the wall so they can see who's coming in. So did Susan. That kind of vigilance took its toll on Susan's mother, Gladys, a beautiful, young, squeaky clean tap dancer from Minneapolis. Susan told Carol Mendelson that her mother hated Vegas and basically stayed in Beverly Hills. And she would visit her mother, but mostly Susan was with her dad. Indeed, Gladys was in a delicate mental state for most of Susan's childhood. When Susan was six years old, Gladys began analysis with a Los Angeles therapist and ultimately moved there. Eventually, Susan joined her mother, but she would lead a nomadic lifestyle, bouncing between schools in Los Angeles, Las Vegas, Idaho, and Oregon. Susan blamed the Las Vegas lifestyle and her father's connections to organized crime for pushing Gladys over the edge. Again, this is from Susan's memoir, Easy Street. One day when I was eight, I was dragged into a car near Fifth Street School by a middle-aged man. He threw me in the back with a bunch of comic books, and I knew he was no friend. He'd only driven a block when I hit him in the face and jumped out of the car, yelling all the way. Two policemen heard me and brought me home. That was a blow my mother's friends say she never recovered from. And there was no evidence that it was a mob kidnap. It could have been a crank or a pervert. But it happened to be at a time of mob tension. My mother was convinced I had just escaped death. She screamed and cried in her bedroom for three weeks after that. And my father had to keep coming home from the hotel. When Susan was 12, her father died unexpectedly during surgery. He was 53. As her mother sunk deeper into depression, Susan was cut adrift. She was sent to live with her father's younger brother, Charles Chicky Berman, and his family in Lewiston, Idaho. A charismatic gambler who was in and out of jail, Chicky doted on Susan, and she adored him. She showed me photos of him, and he was so debonair. And I know, he was a professional bookie. But her mother missed her, and Susan was abruptly sent back to L.A., where she began the eighth grade as a boarding student at the elite Chadwick School in Palos Verdes. She hated it. She experienced her first panic attack at Chadwick, and by second semester, she had failed out and returned to Uncle Chicky. Within the year, Gladys died too. At first, Susan was told it was a heart attack, but she later learned it was an overdose of barbiturates. As an adult, Susan wondered aloud if her mother's death was actually mob-related. Perhaps she had been silenced for demanding Davy's cut of casino profits. People do embellish things, but it really stuck with me. And it was, I mean, clearly Susan did not believe that, you know, had doubts about how her mother died. High school found Susan as a boarding student again, this time at St. Helens Hall, a traditional Episcopalian girls' school in Portland, Oregon, 350 miles west of Lewiston and Uncle Chicky. School administrators made every effort to support her Jewish faith, 
which provided a lasting connection to her father and a meaningful piece of her evolving identity. Susan excelled at St. Helens. She earned good grades, was admitted to the National Honor Society, and cemented her love of writing. She also flourished socially, enjoying weekend stays with the families of local students and making lifelong friends. It seems that, at this critical stage of development, Susan finally experienced the kind of stability that she had not known since her earliest days. After graduation, Susan initially enrolled at the University of Wisconsin, but quickly transferred to UCLA. It was there that she met Robert Durst, the scion of a wealthy real estate family who, like her father, would have a profound impact on her life. And it was through Robert Durst that real estate journalist Charlie Bagley got to know about Susan. Charlie began writing about Durst for the New York Times in the 1990s and later interviewed Durst around the same time that Durst was giving interviews for the HBO documentary, The Jinx. It was actually as she was finishing up at UCLA that she met Bob Durst. Bob had graduated from Lehigh in 1965 and after two years, in the summer of 67, he made his way out to Los Angeles in grad school. So she was a senior, he was a grad student. So Bob was hanging out at Dykstra Hall, which was a mammoth, a 10-story dormitory on a hill overlooking the UCLA campus. And like a lot of young students then, he headed to the pool and he was struck by this vision. It was a woman that was dressed in a white bathing cap and a white bathing suit, but had this luxurious, long, dark hair. And the contrast was captivating. And he, he thought, wow, this is a really pretty woman. And he went over and started talking to her. Bob always had a little difficult time meeting women, but they immediately hit it off. And I think there was a bond between them from the very beginning. Now, both Susan's friends and Bob have been very emphatic about the fact that there was never a romantic aspect to their relationship. But they had both lost parents at a young age. They were both sort of out in the world on their own and they bonded as, as sort of fractured souls. Come back next week for part two of our exploration of Susan Berman's life and for updates from the courtroom as the trial of Robert Durst starts once again. This season, we will hear from special guests, including reporter Charles Bagley, who has covered the Durst story over the last two decades for publications like The New York Times, Town and Country, and Los Angeles Magazine, and who will be covering Durst's upcoming trial for CrimeStory.com. I will also be joined by a co-host this season. Brittany Bookbinder is a screenwriter, improv comedian, and self-described true crime nerd who has been following the Durst case since the jinx came out in 2015. Hi, Brittany. Great to have you aboard. Hi, Carrie. Thanks for having me. With all of the clutter that's out there, what is it about this case that has compelled you to follow it for the past six years? I came to it as a comedian, and I was really struck by the colorful and sometimes bordering on absurd cast of characters. This brazen defense attorney who somehow made the case that you can dismember a body and not be guilty of murder. 
Durst's second wife, who completely looked the other way in spite of all the allegations against the man who she was, at least on paper, married to. And of course, there's the uh, uh, peculiar choices that Durst tends to make. Exactly. He's the, the black sheep of this incredibly powerful family who went on the run disguised as a mute older woman under an assumed name. And then after successfully pulling that off for longer than I would have thought possible, goes and steals a sandwich and gets caught. The whole thing felt like a circus and stranger than fiction. You know, like you, you couldn't write it. You know, I was reflecting on this the other day. And my thinking about this story has evolved a lot since I started digging into it. Have you had that experience too? Absolutely. The the jinx came out just when true crime stories were starting to come into the mainstream. And that was great news for me because I was one of those people who would spend a night curled up with a cup of tea and a grisly tale of murder. But over the last few years, as I've learned more about the justice system, this case has taken on a new meaning for me because I, I see it now in a different context. The years that this has taken at such a huge cost wouldn't have been possible if Durst couldn't afford his defense team. It's an example of how unbalanced the system is. Now that the trial is starting up again, I am incredibly curious to see what happens. Well, that's exactly what we're going to do in season two. We're going to dive into all the eccentric details that this trial will unearth in real time. Here's a small taste of the kind of courtroom drama that we can expect from season two of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. Robert Durst came up to me. These are the words he said. I know she asked you for money. But that's not the meaning that he put on it. He said it like this. I know she asked you for money! So Seymour goes through the revolving door first. Then I go into the revolving door. And from behind, like a sneak, he takes his full strength. He was strong. And he shoved the glass, and I went around and around, and I fell out. Oh, my God. I fell out on the street, on my knees. And he's guffawing. It's the funniest thing he's ever seen in his entire life. automatically receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial, as well as new episodes of Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from Season 1. And head over to CrimeStory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst is created and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Brittany Bookbinder is my co-host. This episode was co-produced by Alexis Bartolo and Brittany Bookbinder. The episode was written by Karen Ann Coburn with contributions from Charles Bagley and Brittany Bookbinder. Passages from Susan Berman's writings were read by Elena Zizanis. Post-production and editing were handled by Jody O'Keefe. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Ghost.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.